Tegan, what's your favorite street? My favorite street, Pennsylvania Avenue. I had you pegged for Sesame Street. You know what my favorite street is? What's that? Memory Lane. We're going to be taking a walk down Memory Lane. And that's thanks to the mailbag, which quick reminder for listeners, if you want to send questions for the mailbag, here's how. If you're listening via Political Wire, you know how to get in contact with Tegan via the website or reply to one of his new Politics Extra Substack newsletters. If you're listening to this via Chris Reback's newsletter, email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now let's get on with business and head down memory lane. Tegan, it turns out that we have a couple of listeners who have emailed to say that they first discovered us when we ran a site called Political Insider. Mrs. Goddard and Mrs. Reback, we'd like to thank you for your notes. <laughs> Just kidding. It wasn't them. That was the very early days of the internet, which I realize you invented, Tegan. Most newspapers weren't even fully available on the web yet, if you can believe that. So what was Political Insider and how does it connect to what we do now? It's pretty wild that we have people who've been reading us for that long. But after we wrote a book, we wrote a book together, if you remember. It was a long, drawn-out process, and then it took many, many months after we finished it to actually get it published. We decided to start a website because you asked me that fateful question at the time. Do you think we should write another book? <laughs> after punching me in the face, you were like, I don't think so. I was like, no way. But I said, what about a website? Wouldn't that be interesting? a political website. And we decided that we were going to start a website that featured a daily briefing about what you needed to know in politics. And that was the idea. And what made it so interesting at the time was most newspapers, as you said, weren't even fully available on the web yet. I mean, this was back in 1997, truly the earliest days of the internet. It is funny to think about because the way that we actually had to put that together, you and I both had day jobs. We worked in New York City. We would get up in the morning. My laptop, I had an IBM ThinkPad back when IBM still made computers. I was trying to remember, my computer was a Gateway. Wasn't that the name of the company based out yep. of South Dakota or something? Gateway? Yep. There was Gateway as well out of yeah, South that's, Dakota. Yeah. That's what mine was. I had a Gateway laptop. So at about 4 a.m. in the morning, I programmed my IBM ThinkPad to dial up on a modem because it was the only internet access that we had at the time. And what it did was it went up and ran a script and it scraped the websites of some of these newspapers that were online. I would then wake up in the morning, I'd take the laptop and I'd put it in my bag and I'd get on the commuter train into New York City and I would start to compile a briefing. And by the time I got into the office, you had done your part of the briefing, you had emailed it to me, and I pulled those together into what we considered the most comprehensive, freely available political briefing. And we put it online and I literally pressed publish. I used a program called Microsoft Front Page to publish it. And it was published just after I got into the work in the morning, you know, probably sometime 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, something like that. And that was it. Then we did it again the next day. And we did that for several years through the 2000 election, if you remember. So the two things that are most interesting to me about that, one is, and I know you've mentioned previously, our interest in following the news, watching the news, guessing what the news was going to be, et cetera. And that was the basis of how you and I connected so many years ago. And that sense that maybe there are other people out there that find it interesting. So one, how that remained true then and remains true today. Secondly, some of the specifics have changed. Obviously, it's no longer Microsoft front page that you used to publish with, and I publish off of Substack. 
the techniques in terms of pulling down from sites versus the importance of looking for sites oneself, that in a world of abundance, it's the editorial choices about here's what you need to know that matters and that is helpful to people and differentiating because what I think or you think or we think is interesting is certainly different than someone else's editorial judgment, that those two principles basically haven't changed. As much as everything has changed in the internet and technology in the last 20, 25 years, those core principles haven't changed. It's remarkable. And as we were discussing this, once this email came in from this reader, I actually went back down to the Wayback Machine, the internet Wayback Machine, and I found a screenshot of Political Insider back right after the 2000 election, the day after the election. And when you read that, and we'll try to post that in the show notes as well, but when you read that briefing from that day, it's actually not that different from what we do today, what you do in it your newsletter. It wasn't bad. I gotta say. It wasn't bad. <laughs> it really wasn't. And it really does speak to the point that that editorial judgment is really the key to doing what you and I do. And fortunately, we found over the years that people actually value that and that they'd like to see that. And so what I think is most interesting about what you said is that you and I, you were like the only person in the real world that I knew who actually cared what ran on the front page of the Des Moines Register back then. I couldn't find anybody else that I lived near or that was in my town or that I worked with that actually cared what was in the Des Moines Register. You did. But as soon as you put a daily briefing up online, I found out that thousands of people did. And we generated quite a few readers in those early days. And we actually, if you remember, late 1990s, there was a bit of an internet boom going and we actually started making a little bit of money off of it. So let's talk about that. And I don't know to what extent business models are something interesting to this audience, this trial balloon audience. So I guess we'll find out. We'll either get, thank you, wow, that was interesting email, or we'll get enough of the business model talk. Could you guys stick to politics and news? But what was the business model back then? How does it compare to the digital media business model today? Well, it's interesting. There wasn't much of a business model on the web back then. There was not very much digital advertising. The digital advertising didn't really work that well. People were not about to enter credit cards onto the internet, you know, into some web page, particularly some web page that two guys just put up. Those types of things, subscriptions and digital ads, they weren't really reliable. They were starting. People knew that that might happen, but they weren't very reliable. But what was happening was that a lot of investment firms, a lot of investors were putting a lot of money into websites, venture capital into websites on the promise that one day these business models would be worked out. And so I actually think what you and I did was fairly clever. We created a business model, which got some of this venture capital money that was being invested in these other firms. We got some of these other websites to pay us, which I thought was actually fairly clever. Just to be clear, so you were not able to buy a yacht or several yachts off of the so-called venture capital money? I was not. And uh, you know, I was not the Mark Cuban of the time. So the venture capital money, right, which went to other websites, what we were able to do was sell native ads. We did have that. We had other regular ads, a couple of them. We also were then able to white label the publication. We didn't quit our day jobs off of it, but there was a business model available. It wasn't an old business model, but we took it to the web. It was called syndication. So what we did is we had this daily briefing that came out every morning and we went to other websites. And it's kind of crazy when you think about it, 25 years later in the way that the internet has developed. We took our daily briefing and we went to other websites and we said, would you like to syndicate this daily briefing every morning? 
It would go up on our site around 7.30 to 8 o'clock in the morning, and we would make it available to them as well. It was a daily briefing powered by Political Insider. And we found a bunch of takers. Political Wag, it was put up on a site called E the People, iVillage, which was later owned by NBC, another website called speakout.com. And then, of course, one of our clients was Vote.com, a website created by the infamous political consultant, Dick Morris. Turned out that he wanted a little political news and we were creating political news. But it was a crazy business model when you think about it, because it was this exact same briefing that was literally available identically and at the same time on multiple websites. But nobody really had worked out their own business models. And all they were trying to do at the time was they were trying to get as many eyeballs as they could to their sites with the promise to their investors One day we'll figure out how to monetize this traffic. And what you and I did is we just kind of jumped ahead of the whole game and we decided we will help get you traffic and you'll give us some of this venture capital money that you're burning through. And they paid us monthly fees in order to white label this briefing. This was the type of thing that was happening at the time in the late 90s. And it was a internet bubble, as we later learned. And this is one of the reasons why it was not a sustainable business model. No, it was not an immediately sustainable business model, but it was a business model and it was a business, obviously, that had legs. Anything else before we get off of memory lane? Well, I think it, you know what was interesting about it was this was peak internet bubble times. And you'll recall, we actually had multiple offers to buy our website because our website was generating a decent amount of traffic at this time. And we had a couple companies. One was called politics.com and the other was called Netivation. Neither of these companies are around anymore, but what they did is they did offer to buy the site because we were probably one of the preeminent political sites on the web at the time. The problem was they weren't willing to offer us cash for the site. They wanted to offer us stock in their companies, again, on the promise that these venture capital-backed companies would one day make money. And of course, all of these companies that I've talked about, whether it's politics.com or Netivation, or whether it's the companies that we syndicated our briefing to, every single one of them is gone today. And before we ended up getting ourselves hurt, we decided to shutter the site and move on to do other things. Yeah. Remember those conversations? Well, Tegan, Chris, we've got a great offer for you. Very curious to hear this offer. How much money are you thinking to offer? No, 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 no. Chris, don't be silly. Better than money. We want to offer you shares in our company. The value that you'll get off of this shares in our company, Chris, can you imagine? You'll be in on the ground floor. Gosh, that sounds so great. Um, Can you believe we turned that down? uh, No, thanks. (laughs) Well, you know, in any event, what's interesting about it and what's interesting talking about this is I absolutely got bit by this digital media bug. I found it incredible that you could start gathering people on a website around a topic that you were all passionate about. And I found that just amazing. And so the idea of writing another book, I stopped caring about that. I wanted to do something on the internet and it took a while to figure it out. But ultimately, all these years later, that's kind of what you and I are doing still. You want to know the other problem with making money, getting paid for website products and bringing in cash taken? Tell me. Is you got to pay taxes. And (laughs) I want to talk to you about states like Florida and like Texas that, as Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott continually remind us, there are states in the U.S. that don't have personal income taxes. Eight states have no personal income tax. Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. There is absolutely competition among the states to create improved tax situations. 
Forbes wrote recently, Tennessee governor seeks to make one of the nation's best tax climates even more hospitable. Lawmakers and governors in nearly half of the states have cut income tax rates over the past two years, and more are now following suit. Before the second month of 2023 came to a close, noteworthy income tax cuts had already been introduced and passed in a number of states. The latest development came last week in West Virginia, where House and Senate leaders reached a deal on income tax rate reducing reform, something that has been a top priority for Governor Jim Justice. So then the article went on to talk about why the states are doing it, then continued. Another motivating factor is that lawmakers in states that already have a low overall tax burden and hospitable business tax climate, places like Florida, Texas, North Carolina, and Tennessee, continue to pursue further reforms that will provide more relief to taxpayers and make their tax codes even more conducive to job creation than they already are. Take Tennessee Governor Bill Lee and the new tax reform plan he unveiled last month. Tennessee is home to the nation's third lowest overall average tax burden and is one of only eight states that does not levy a personal income tax. Despite this relatively favorable fiscal position, Governor Lee's tax plan makes it clear he does not think volunteer state lawmakers should rest on their laurels. Governor Lee's tax package has been introduced as a single piece of legislation that will be taken up in the committee. Lee's tax plan implements a number of changes that would make Tennessee's tax code less burdensome for businesses. The governor's tax package provides employers with significant relief from the three major taxes imposed on them by the state of Tennessee, the franchise tax, the excise tax, and the business tax. So my question to you, Tegan, is if places like Tennessee, already among the most favorable, are making it even more favorable if there are places like Florida, Texas, and six other states that have no personal income tax. What is the argument against doing this? Well, it's interesting. There's two things that are driving this trend right now and making it a little bit more newsworthy and increasing this activity in the states. The first one is the fact that there were these large COVID relief packages that kicked money back to the states so that the states could essentially protect their budgets. That was at least the theory. Turns out that with the economy doing much better than I anticipated, that these states are running surpluses and they are giving this money back in the form of tax cuts. They've got the cash. Exactly. They've got the cash. Number two, though, driving this is the polarization in the country. And many of these red states, particularly, their legislatures have been captured by the farther right of the Republican Party. They don't have much interest in some of these social programs in their states that they used to be spending money on. And so they're much more willing to actually cut certain social programs in order to give tax cuts and attract business. What we have in effect, though, because you're seeing all this activity and you see article after article talking about this competition between the states, I go farther than saying it's a competition. It's really an economic civil war that's happening right now. And these are the first shots. It is one state after another trying to compete for companies, for people to move there, all on the basis of taxes in the short term without looking at some of the ways that that money is typically spent, which is on infrastructure and other social programs. But just as the country nationally has polarized dramatically. It's increasingly so on this case. And I'd call it one of the first battles of the new civil war. The Wall Street Journal called it the state tax cut movement in an editorial. And among their points, they picked up on this competition among states and wrote, the tax cutting spree is increasing the tax divide between GOP-led and progressive democratic states. 
This, in turn, contributes to more cross-state migration. From Florida to Texas and Idaho, the states that draw the most new residents from other states tend to have much lower tax rates. Population losers like New Jersey, New York, and California are among the most punitive taxers. Competition is moving states towards better tax codes, and the trend is compounding. Americans in states that haven't joined the tax cutters at least have more places to move to. It is a war of sorts over population, over businesses, over who's going to move there. The stakes have been set. The battle lines have been drawn. For right here, right now, you have governors of states in the office for a very limited amount of time, four years, eight years, whatever it is, surely have every incentive to maximize the attractiveness of living there, particularly because they've got the cash, because of stimulus money, because the economy has been running strong for the last couple of years, there is this surplus, so they have this ability. Where does it end? Isn't the pressure on states like New York and New Jersey and Illinois and California, at some point, doesn't it have to be too much for them to take? Well, it is. And, and, you know, I'll add another layer to this as well, which is that you've got the federal government. And if you go back to the Trump years and see what the Trump tax cut package did, it further exacerbated this tension between the states because a congressionally passed tax package actively hurt high tax, typically blue states because of the salt state and local deductions, state and local tax deductions that went away. That has exacerbated some of these differences. And so there really is a war between the states right now, you know, attracting these companies. It's even more interesting when you think of the fact that on the national level, we're also increasingly turning in. Donald Trump was a user of tariffs. Joe Biden wants things made in America. And so you've got a lot of this economic activity that was being done abroad. We're now almost locking ourselves off from parts of the world because we'd much prefer to have that economic activity in our country. And now the states are fighting for it. So it's a really interesting situation. It's not sustainable, really. I mean, in the best world, we would have a federal government that was able to actually govern and was able to actually put together coherent, comprehensive tax policy, trying to ameliorate some of this. You know, we don't allow states to fight over all sorts of things that the federal government is in charge of. But because we don't have a really well-oiled federal government right now, particularly when it comes to tax policies, the states are doing what the states are going to do. So states like Florida, Texas, Tennessee, West Virginia, et cetera, et cetera, continue to reduce taxes as much as they possibly can, I would think, up to the point where the population within those states push back. So let's just say West Virginia, for example, didn't reduce taxes. I think that the work that Jim Justice just did, if I am remembering the article right, brought West Virginia from the 20th most attractive business state to 17. He couldn't reduce it more. I don't know the reason why. My guess is that in West Virginia, there are people who want their social services. And if they push back too much on it or cut too much in West Virginia, Jim Justice is out. Okay, fine. You know, let's just say he brought it exactly to the point where it balanced between as low as humanly possible without going so low that folks will vote him out of office. On the other hand, Florida, Texas, where providing those social services may not be what people there want. And there are governors who are more than happy to continue to cut costs. And if that means less government, that means less government. You know, why is that a problem? That's a benefit. That's not a problem. That's a feature, not a bug. 
where does it go? If a place like New York continues to keep taxes high, I mean, you know as many people as I know who have bought places now down in Florida. People are moving. People are leaving. Where does it end? I can't tell you where it ends. I can tell you another trend that's exacerbating all of this, and it comes again from the pandemic, which is so many people discovered during the pandemic that they were able to work from anywhere in the world. You can now hold a job at a company that may be based in New York, and you can live in Utah, or you can live in Florida, or you can live somewhere else. That's the other trend that's particularly troubling. I think the only solution to this is from federal policy and trying to create some sort of evenness so that you don't have this great disparity between these states, because ultimately the federal government ends up paying, as we've seen time and time again, if one state does not have the ability to protect their citizens, you know, the federal government comes in and tries to do so, whether it's through education, through infrastructure spending or something like that. So ultimately, it does become a federal problem if you've got a lot of states who've just cut social services to the bone. I don't know where it ends, but it is an interesting trend. And I think it's part of this overall polarization, and I would call it an economic civil war that we're in. I don't know that this is a pushback. I don't think it is. But yes, I hear you. At some point, maybe the federal government has to do something. But before that, what this is making me think of, you know, you and I spend a lot of time listening to, reading, thinking about the stuff that Ben Thompson writes. And I know you know that he writes a great deal about the challenges that incumbents face. Most recently, he's been writing about it, well, among many, many areas in terms of cable bundling and RSNs, regional sports networks and other areas. But he wrote about it as well, I know you know, uh, in terms of Google and search and the way that Microsoft went after chat GPT. Google was a little slow on that and why Microsoft, which you know was not the incumbent, Bing was not the incumbent, had ability to move faster, et cetera, et cetera. But New York's the incumbent. California's the incumbent. Maybe on some level, Illinois, New Jersey's the incumbent. These states are locked into, I would argue, old thinking. And you're 100% right. Everything changed with technology. And then in addition, the pandemic created new realities that opened up people's eyes to new opportunities. And the work from anywhere, it is real, as you and I both know. A place like New York or whatever the incumbent is has to somehow think completely differently. And it's never easy for the incumbents because they milk the existing system, newspapers, they milk the existing system for as long as they can because that's in their economic interest. They're still making money. New York is still gaining tax revenue, even though it is losing, if not bleeding, high tax paying individuals. At some point, something catastrophic occurs and the incumbent is forced to rethink their approach. But until then, I think that there needs to be some really innovative thinking sooner rather than later, like yesterday. Well, it's an interesting idea. And Ben Thompson, who you mentioned, is the writer for Stratechery, a really excellent newsletter that Chris and I both read. It is the idea that the company or the firm, or in this case, the state that has already won the battle that has the biggest market share, the reason they don't change so quickly is they have the most to lose. That is a problem in the corporate world. Maybe it's a problem in the states. I'm not entirely sure about that because what we also have is the federal government, is this layer of the federal government where the federal government can stop some of these skirmishes that are going on in the states if they got their act together and were able to do so. But it is an interesting theory and it is an interesting problem that you bring up. It's something that we're going to be facing really the ramifications of all of this for many years to come. 
there are economic reasons why things happen, there are legal reasons why things happen, and there are political reasons why things happen. And these conversations are centered around the political reasons why things happen, but the tax case really brings all of them together. And if all you're thinking about is the economic components around them, you're missing part of the story. There are politics as well, and we will dig into that. I'm going to go close the gate on memory lane. <laughs> Chris, I'm going to go catch a plane. And on our next episode, I'll tell you where I was. Good travels, Tegan. Thanks, Chris.